that is the greater discourse at Asapura, the 39th discourse in the Matimanikaya. And the governing topic of this discourse, the topic which the Buddha addresses at the very beginning of the discourse, is the question of what are the things that make one a true ascetic, a true recluse, a summoner. And the Buddha has developed his answer in a step-by-step manner, beginning with sense of moral shame and fear of blame, then working through morality or right conduct of body, speech, mind, and livelihood, then coming into these transitional factors between sila and samadhi, the transitional factors of restraint of the sense faculties, wakefulness, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Then he takes up the theme of the abandoning of the five mental entrances, which I discussed in the previous two sections. And now in the present section, he will deal with the full perfection or accomplishment of samadhi through the attainment of the states of meditative absorption which are called the four jhanas. <coughs> now, in order to achieve concentration, the meditator has to overcome these five mental obstructions, which are the impediments, the mental impediments, to the unification of the mind. Those are the five hindrances of sensual desire, ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry and doubt. As the meditator is applying the mind to his main meditation subject, he is gradually and progressively strengthening in the mind five mental factors which are directly opposed to those five hindrances. These five mental factors are states of mind or factors of mind which can be present in ordinary consciousness just in our day-to-day consciousness. But when they're present in our day-to-day consciousness, they are usually applied in a rather haphazard manner. They are just utilized for our practical day-to-day purposes without having any kind of underlying, unifying ground to bind them together and to elevate them to the achievement of some superior goal. But when the mind 
is applied to a particular meditation subject. A simple subject like the in and out breathing, or a casina object, or any object of concentration. <clears throat> Even though we might not be aware of it, but through the repeated effort to focus the mind on the object, certain these five mental factors are repeatedly being strengthened and reinforced until gradually they become the dominant forces at work in the mind. And it is these five mental factors, when they reach a certain level of development, that will become transformed into what are called the janangas, the factors of jhana, the factors of absorption. I'll write the names of these five factors. <coughs> Okay, the first of these five factors, five jhana factors, is called vitakta, which is translated here as applied thought. So vitakta is defined as the mental factor which is responsible for mounting the mind onto the object or directing the mind onto the object. Now whenever we are thinking about any object, even in our day-to-day -day life, thinking what we're going to have for dinner tonight, what work we have to do tomorrow, thinking what happened yesterday, what I ate for breakfast this morning, any thought like this, there is a factor which is responsible for placing the mind on the object. And that factor is vitaka. Usually in our day-to-day -day life, vitaka just scatters itself over a wide variety of objects. But when one chooses a meditation subject, for example, in Anapanasati, the touch sensation of the breath coming <coughs> in and out, then one is repeatedly placing the mind upon that object. And that act of placing the mind, or of directing the mind onto the object, that is the taka. It's a very ordinary mental factor. Nothing <laughs> super divine about it that makes it appear to have descended from the heavens. But just the same mental factor by which we ordinarily think about what we're going to enjoy tomorrow, or the rude words that such and such a person spoke to me yesterday. That factor of thought, when it gets applied, moment by moment by moment on the same object, then it becomes strengthened 
and fortified to this extent that it can actually plunge into that object and remain fixed unshakably on that object. That is the taka. Vichara is the second jhana factor. This is translated here as sustained thought, which now I'm not so happy with that, and now I prefer to render it examination. Even one might even give it the metaphorical sense exploration. That is, when one directs the mind to an object, then one <coughs> looks at that object, examines it, tries to see what that object is. This is something which is occurring countless times every moment. Whenever we think about any object, at the same time, even just for a fleeting split second, the mind is examining that object or inspecting the object to see what it is. But ordinarily, when the mind is just left to its own momentum, to its own internal flow, then the objects are always changing. And so the quality of examination is not able to build up any kind of deep strength, any power to plunge the mind deeply into the object. But when the meditator chooses a single kamatana, a single field of work, and just repeatedly applies the mind to that object, then he is also moment by moment examining that same object examining, examining, examining. And in that way, vichara, examination, is growing in strength. Now, I would say of these five jhana factors that the two, first two jhana factors are the causal factors, we can say. Or we can say that those are the workers, the main workers. Because what, when one is fixing the mind on an object, what is one doing? Or let's say when one is trying to concentrate on an object, what is one doing? One is fixing the mind on the object, applying the mind to that object, and examining that object. That is the work of vitaka, fixing the mind on the object, and vichara, examining the object. As one fixes the mind on the object and examines the object again and again, then certain inner changes take place which are not experienced in normal consciousness. One great force that arises in the mind 
when the mind starts to become concentrated, when the hindrances start to subside, there comes great joy and happiness. We even see this if we go back into the sutta, to the previous passage that we discussed last time, where the Buddha is speaking about the five, the abandoning of the five hindrances. He says that when In the case of each hindrance, when the monk abandons that hindrance, then he looks back, or actually this comes in the similes. We take the simile, for example, of the man who has crossed the desert, and then when he's safe and secure without loss to his property, he looks back and he considers this, and then he will be glad and full of joy. And this is like the abandoning of the five hindrances. As the meditator goes on applying the mind to the object again and again, as the five hindrances get weaker and drop away, and the mind remains steadily on the object, then joy arises and happiness arises. And those are the next two factors of jhana. Piti, which is joy or rapture, and happiness, which is sukha, sukha, which is happiness. Also in our ordinary experience we have occasions of joy and happiness. But ordinarily, when the mind is engrossed in sense objects and worldly enjoyment, then the joy and happiness that arise are of a tainted quality, a defiled quality. Or even when the mind is engaged in wholesome, virtuous activity, though there is joy and happiness present of a pure quality, but still the happiness and joy have not accumulated concentrated power. But when the mind is fixed onto a single object and cleared of the five hindrances, then through the force of concentration and the relief from freedom from the hindrances, there comes up a new kind of piti, a new kind of joy or rapture. And there comes a new kind of happiness. This is the sukha, concentration. So those are the next two jhana factors. <coughs> And these two jhana factors seem to be very similar, but according to the explanations and the commentaries, they're subtly different from each other in that piti, or rapture, or joy, is technically not a feeling. It's not part of the Vedana Kanda. 
but it's actually part of the sankara kanda, the aggregate of mental formation. Whereas sukha is a feeling. It's the pleasant mental feeling. And so it belongs to, the, in the terms of the five aggregates, it belongs to the vedana kanda, the aggregate of feeling. And the commentaries give a little example to illustrate the distinction between piti and sukha. They explain that, well, to give the illustration, they consider the case of a man who has been traveling through a desert, very hot, dreary journey through a desert, and he has limited supply of water left. He's been rationing his food, rationing his water, and he's wondering even whether he's going to get through this desert alive. And as he's traveling, he meets another person coming from the opposite direction who tells him that just about one kilometer down the road there is an oasis where there's some trees growing and grass and a nice pond with sweet water for drinking and bathing and there are some trees with dates and fruits <laughs> maybe Coca-Cola company <laughs> okay so when he receives this news then he becomes full of joy and <coughs> very excited and exhilarated and thinks, wonderful, now I can relieve my thirst, relieve my hunger and bathe and refresh myself. So then when he's walking quickly and excitedly down the road, that is similar to piti, to rapture joy. Then when he arrives at the oasis, then immediately he takes off his clothes, he plunges into the pond, he bathes, he takes cups of water and drinks the water, he fills his water bottle, then he lies down in the shade of a tree and the grass, thinking, oh wonderful, oh wonderful. At that time, then his mind is like, that state of mind is like super happiness. <coughs> but I should say that this illustration, uh, it shouldn't be applied too literally, because according to the illustration, the piti and sukha are like states which do not exist simultaneously. When the man is excited about the oasis, then he's not experiencing that happiness after bathing. And when he's bathed and lying in the grass, then he's not experiencing the excitement and exhilaration of approaching the pond. But in the case of piti and sukha, they can exist simultaneously. But piti joy, a rapture, is a 
coarser state than sukha. Piti still has some kind of excitement about it, some kind of almost exhilaration, the quality of exhilaration. And so even though piti and sukha will exist together in the two first two jhanas, when the meditator enters into the third jhana, piti will fall away. It subsides, but sukha, happiness, will persist. Okay, and so both piti and sukha arise through this constant work of applying the mind and to a fixed object and examining that object. That's the work of the first two jhana factors. And when these other four jhana factors come to maturity, then the fifth jhana factor also flourishes, flowers, and is brought to maturity. This fifth jhana factor is called ekagata, which means literally one-pointedness. Eka is one, aga means point, like the point of a needle, and ta means miss. Now this factor of one-pointedness is something which is, it's a factor of consciousness which is always present on every occasion of experience. It's present in every state of mind. For the mind to take any object, it requires one-pointedness as the factor which is responsible for the (coughs) centering of the mind on that object. If you just think of being aware of anything, if, just look at this glass, and just keep your mind on the glass. If you just then reflect back on the mind, you'll notice that when the mind is on the glass, the glass is the center of attention, the center of awareness. But everything else around the glass is not obliterated from your awareness. When your mind is on the glass, then you are vaguely aware of the rest of the visual field falling away into the horizons of your perception. But the central point of your attention is the glass. And so the mental factor by reason of which the mind focuses upon that one object and lets everything else drop into the background, that is ekagata, one-pointedness. But again, in ordinary consciousness, 
we're thinking now of this, now of that, now of that, now of this. And so the base upon which one-pointedness is resting is never stable, never steady. And because the mind is always changing, the thoughts are always moving from object to object, the quality of one-pointedness doesn't come to prominence. It doesn't play any kind of major dominant role in the working of consciousness. It's just something which is very much in the background, like a little bit like the puppet master who's controlling the puppets. One sees, <coughs> one sees the puppets, but one doesn't see the puppet master. But Ekakata is there, in the background, fixing the mind, or focusing the mind, or centering the mind on one object or another <coughs> object, according to the play of other mental factors. Now what happens when the mind chooses a object of meditation, an object of concentration? Vitaka is constantly fixing the mind on that object, applying the mind to that object. Vichara is constantly examining the object. And through the combined work of vitaka and vichara, the factor of one-pointedness is repeatedly getting strengthened to the degree that it rises to prominence so that the mind can remain unshakably fixed upon that object. And that factor or quality of not wavering in regard to the object of non-distractedness in relation to the object, of one-pointed fixation of the mind on the object, that is the work of Ekagata. And so the meditator begins his practice designed to overcome the five entrances by choosing first what we call the Mula Kamatan, the basic meditation subject, which might be the mindfulness of breathing, a Kasina object, or some other object, Metta Bhavana, Asuba Bhavana, any object that accords with the meditator's temperament. Then, when the five hindrances come up, from time to time, the meditator may have to use another meditation subject to counteract that hindrance until the hindrances get debilitated and subside. When, even from the early stage, when the meditator is simply applying the mind to the object, even though the mind appears to be drifting and daydreaming and scattered, but every effort to bring the mind back to the object, 
not to let the mind drift, not to be overthrown by the, by the stream of thoughts. Every such effort is, even though one doesn't perceive it, it's strengthening these five jhanic factors, the five factors of jhana. And when these jhana factors reach a certain degree of strength, then the hindrances will be kept at bay. They'll be kept at a distance. And that initial stage, when the mind remains unshakably on the object, free from the hindrances, is a stage which is called, in the commentaries, upachara samadhi, which means neighborhood concentration or access concentration. Okay, so this stage when the five hindrances are removed and kept at bay is called upachara samadhi, access concentration where the mind is now free from the hindrances and the jhana factors have now emerged and are quite prominent in their operation but they have not yet brought the mind into the state of absorption but as the meditator goes on with the practice fixing the mind on the object then a stage becomes reached in which the mind enters that first stage of profound absorption called the first jhana. And that is called, in the commentary, apana samadhi, absorption concentration. Okay, so now we'll go to the text itself. This is in paragraph 15. (coughs) Having abandoned these five hindrances, imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from the term that he is using, rendering, he's using the word happiness as a rendering for piti and pleasure as a rendering for sukha. Whereas I prefer to use rapture or joy as a rendering for piti and happiness as a rendering for sukha. So let me reread that. I'll say, with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. Okay, this is the usual formula in the suttas for the attainment of the first jhana. And I just find this one single sentence of the Buddha to be reflect a very perfectly organized mind. Since if one examines this passage just phrase by phrase, we could see 
the entire sequence of stages necessary for the attainment of jhana very, very beautifully and concisely indicated. Okay, first he refers back to the previous passage, having abandoned these five hindrances, which are imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom, quite secluded from sensual pleasures in Pali, Vivijeva Kamehi, then secluded from unwholesome states, Vivija Akusalehi Dhamehi. First, quite secluded from sensual pleasures. By this, the Buddha shows, you might call the objective requisite for the attainment of jhana. That is, to develop the mind for the attainment of jhana, one has to put aside the indulgence in sense pleasures. The attainment of jhana is a supersensual state, a state which is actually, you could say ontologically, it's beyond the sensual world, the world of sense pleasures and sense desires. And so the achievement of jhana requires a certain inner detachment from objective sense pleasures, from sensuously enjoyable objects. It requires a certain degree of inner renunciation or relinquishment. Then in the next phrase, Vivicha Kusalehi Dhamehi, the Buddha indicates the subjective counterpart of that. That is, it requires isolation or seclusion of the mind from the unwholesome states, which are the five hindrances. And so these two are, we can call these the two requisites for jhana. The objective requisite, which is seclusion from sense pleasures, and the subjective requisite, which is seclusion from the five hindrances. When that, of course it requires more than that, but with that as a foundation, then one enters, that's the initial entry into the jhana. First, one has to pass through the door before one can dwell on it. Then one, after entering, one abides in it, dwells in it. And then the Buddha mentions here, Four of the jhana factors, applied thought, sustained thought, and joy and happiness. He does not mention in this place, he doesn't mention one point in this, I think because that's already understood. And also there are other passages where the jhana factors are enumerated and 
in those places one-pointedness is mentioned. Okay, then that is the standard formula for the attainment of the first jhana. But then the Buddha goes on to explain how the meditator masters the jhana. It's not a matter of just entering and dwelling in it, but one, as one dwells in the jhana, one becomes more and more familiar with it, then one masters it in a certain way. And that way is described here that he makes the, I'll use my preferred terminology, he makes the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. That is, what is to be done after entering and dwelling in the jhana is to take that happiness and pleasure and just expand it so that it seems as if the entire physical body is just utterly pervaded by that happiness, by that rapture and happiness, so that the body is actually felt as being drenched or steeped or filled with that rapture and happiness, even to the extent that it seems seems that there is not even a single part of the body from the top of the head down to the feet, which is not pervaded by that rapture and happiness. Then in this sutta, the Buddha gives each of these states, he gives a very, very beautiful simile, which conveys the flavor of that attainment. And here he takes the example of a bat, a batman or a barber or his apprentice. And he will take this bath powder or shaving powder, this kind of soap powder, and put it into a basin, a metal basin, and he'll sprinkle it with water. And then he will knead that mass of soap until it forms a ball bath powder, and the moisture pervades entirely the ball of soap, so that every little speck of that ball of soap, bathing soap or shaving soap, is pervaded with water. And it's impossible to say where the water ends and the soap begins. And so the ball is just drenched, steeped, soaked and pervaded with water. And yet the water is contained so completely and perfectly by the soap that the water does not ooze out. In the same way, the Buddha says, the bhikkhu 
makes the rapture and happiness born of seclusion drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of this whole body unpervaded by the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. Okay, and that is the attainment of the first jhana. Okay, I think I will stop the discourse now because it will be too difficult to try to push push in the later jhanas. And so we'll stop now and I'll ask a question and next time we'll continue with the remaining job. Okay, if there are any questions, then please help me see that. Yeah. The distinction between piti and sukha. I would not say that the distinction is between what's physical and mental. Both piti and sukha are mental factors. But what I would say is that piti has a more physical aspect to it or it manifests itself in, say, in more physical, physical ways. Now, when the mind gets filled with piti, especially in these approach to the meditative attainment, then there's likely to be things like chills, these goose flesh, and sometimes a shaking of the body and spells of rapture, and the Joy is apt to be felt as though it were physical, but the piti itself is a mental factor, and it originates through this practice, through this process of mental cultivation. Whereas sukha is definitely much, since it's a subtler quality, it does not have the same type of physical manifestations that piti does. But both piti and sukha are mental factors. He might not know it as a jhana if he has not, you know, studied these texts and become familiar with the terminology. Then he might not identify this is the first jhana. But he will definitely know that the mind has reached a certain level of concentration and there will be uh, certain indicators that were not uh, present previously. So he'll feel as though the mind has entered some special state. And I'd say also that these jhanic attainments can be reached and have been reached by meditators 
outside the Buddhist tradition. They're not unique to Buddhist meditation. So there will be meditators who don't even have the terminology of jhana, samadhi, say Christian contemplatives, who are able through the process of mental unification to unify the mind to such an extent that it enters into states which are actually the equivalent of the jhanas. And so they will not be able to apply the label this is the first jhana or second jhana, but they will think that they've reached a certain level of what they call infused contemplation in the Christian tradition. concentration and turn into reflective thought, discursive thought? Well first, perhaps I should clarify that what I've been describing is the process of constant developing samadhi or practice of dhamma-upasana. One will be using different objects, not fixing the mind, always on one single simple object, as will be used in the summit of meditation. And so, in the Satipatthana meditation, there will be present in the contemplation vitaka and vichara, because when one is taking the different objects, one has to apply the mind on the object and examine the object. But Vitaka and Vichara in the Satipatthana will be functioning in a different way than in the context of Samatha. In Samatha, the task of Vitaka and of Vitaka is just to apply the mind onto that same object. Whenever the mind strays from the object, just bring it back to the same object. And Vichara is just examination of the same object. It's not seeking to investigate things like impermanence, dukkha, anatta, not to reflect on the characteristics of the object, but just keeping the mind on that object. Whereas in something like Dhammanupasana, let's say contemplating form that's arising and passing away, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, they are arising and passing away. Then one will be noting 
the body or the physical, say, physical elements, noting their arise and passing, their arise and passing. And so Vitaka and Vichara will be working with differentiated objects. Then after noting the body, one will note feeling, it's arising and passing, arising and passing. Perceptions, they're arising and passing. So the objects in that contemplation are different objects, always changing. And the mind is noting the different objects and their constant change. But through the continual development of sati, of mindfulness, even though the objects are constantly changing, the mind has a force of one-pointedness so that it always remains fixed on the changing process of phenomena. So that though the phenomena change, the mind is always attentive to them always noting them. But because it's taking differentiated objects, it doesn't enter into absorption. It remains at a lower level of concentration, but it's a level of concentration which allows for what's called dhamma-vichya, investigation of phenomena to occur. That investigation cannot occur when the mind is completely absorbed in the object. It's not an intellectual analysis, like one is thinking, well, okay, this is the body, the body is, let's analyze it into the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element. It's not a kind of intellectual, just discursive analysis like that. But one is observing the characteristics of each of the elements, say, solidity, solidity of the body is a characteristic of the earth element, the fluidity in the body, one actually experiences that fluid quality, that cohesive quality is the liquid element, the bodily heat as the fire element, the oscillation or say, the in and out breathing and the circulatory processes as the air element. But I think the important point is that Vitaka and Vichara work in one way in Samatha meditation and in a different way in Satipatthana or Vipassana meditation. Okay, I think then we will stop for this evening and then continue next week. Next week is no holiday, actually.